We are born free. And we will die free. The time in between, though, that's complicated. In that time, governments, institutions, and our egos will limit our ability to find true freedom in this life. These are real stories of real people overcoming the odds, persevering in justice, and unlocking their potential. Welcome to Finding Freedom. Here's your host, John Oderman. All right. We are live to our patrons on Facebook and uh, on YouTube. So if you're not, if you're not hearing this live, you could uh, if you're hearing the uh, the replay. So you can always uh, get that live watch and, and comment live if you want to uh, by joining our Lions of Liberty Pride. So we're joined. I am joined by Gabriel Custodit, and he is the host of the Watchman Privacy Podcast. He's also the author of the Watchman Guide to Privacy, Reclaim Your Digital, Financial, and Lifestyle Freedom. Um, as you know, over the past several months here on Lines of Liberty and on this show, Finding Freedom, really have been focusing more uh, talking about privacy, the importance of privacy. And I've made known that it's an area in in my life where that I've identified there's a really an opportunity for significant growth and really a need for significant growth. So very excited to have Gabriel on the show to get his input, learn from him, and uh, hopefully you all can as well. So welcome to Finding Freedom. Thank you, John. It's nice to be with you. Well, thanks for coming on the show. And before we get into the the details and the nitty gritty talking about the the do's and don'ts of privacy, um, you know, I don't know how much background you you want to give on yourself, but really, what I'm curious about the most is personally, what set you off down this road towards you know making privacy really a foundation of your life. Yeah, and that's how I typically tend to uh, answer the question of my background. So I think like like most people, and, and especially people who are a little bit skeptical of, uh, of the government, I uh, thought that um, privacy was, was incredibly important. And revelations over the years, the Snowden revelations uh, and such, kind of just made me decide to get in the ring and to live a privacy lifestyle, which I've been, been doing for the last few years, and to really study and learn this stuff so I could help others. Uh, and that's what I've been doing. And so um, as I've dived back into history and current events and, and techniques, um, I'm kind, I kind of start to see privacy as a, a through line, right? It's the means to an end. Freedom is a, is a great goal. Um, living a great life is a great goal. And privacy is one of the essential tools to achieving that. And so privacy is not the end goal. But it's important. Not enough people, I think, are talking about it. Certainly, in a holistic way, like I do, in a uh, a political way, like I do. I don't think you can separate privacy from politics, um, which is what a lot of people try to do. I don't just focus on the digital privacy. I, I try to, as I said, treat it holistically. Mm. Um, and so that's kind of that's kind of where I'm coming from, um, and how I uh, how I differentiate myself from some of the other people talking about, you know, how to change your iPhone settings, and we don't need more videos. Uh, about that kind of thing, but that stuff's important. I also look at the big picture. That, that is interesting, um, and I'm glad you bring that up because I, I was just I was going to jump in and ask you because um, most people, you know, that I talk to coming from the you know the privacy world, 
really totally disregard politics. So it's interesting that, that you look at it holistically, taking politics in as a, as a piece of privacy. You know, a lot of people are more anarchists towards it and just swear off even, you know, acknowledging uh, that, that we live in a very political world. So when you say you look at it holistically, uh, what, what do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is in my book, I have sections, of course, on digital privacy, on phone privacy, but also on financial privacy. That's my biggest chapter. And lifestyle privacy. I talk about internationalization. I talk about traveling privacy. I talk about protecting your home uh, and your physical possessions, these sorts of things. Um, a lot of people, the, the, way I, the way I put it is there are a lot of people talking about, well, let me phrase it this way. You can be hurt online, of course. You can Things can happen to you online. But if your physical uh, possessions, if your, if your physical being is not private, then that is, that is ultimately the end goal. So when I say holistically, I just mean I don't just focus on the digital. I try to look at privacy for all aspects of our life. Okay. That makes sense. So say you have someone like myself that really has not – you know, put privacy at the top of the list for, for what we're, you know, what we're focusing on. Um, what are a few key things that someone just, just, you know, just starting to become aware and concerned with their own personal privacy? What are the first things you would advise someone to start, to start out with? And yeah, John, there are, there are plenty of easy things to, to do. Some people feel like this is all or nothing, that if you don't cover up every little detail, then it's being exposed. And that's not true. Of course, there are different levels that you can go to and not going all the way is, is not a defeat. And so the first thing I tell people is, um, well, I try to first explain what your vulnerabilities are, right? We live in a world, of course, where government is increasing in size all the time. We have uh, companies which um, are collecting data like crazy, and they have third-party systems that they rely on, and those third-party systems have vulnerabilities. All of these companies have vulnerabilities. Anytime you give away your information, you are at risk of it being compromised sooner or later. It's going to happen. It doesn't matter if Susie at the dentist's office says, oh, we, we treat your information very confidentially. It, it's safe. No, it's not. It's going to be exposed at some point, very likely. So I try to phrase it like that so that people understand that um, there's a lot of reasons to be uh, careful about what you put out there. And so the first thing is simply to be more aware of the information that you give out and just start to limit it. So just start to notice this. You go to the store, they want your phone number for your um, uh, you know, customer uh, appreciation bonus. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you're part of the system, right? You go to, let's say, Whole Foods and they want your Amazon account. Well, that's nice, isn't it? Except, you know, what are you revealing, right? Uh, when you get your few cents off of an avocado and you've linked it to your Amazon account, maybe your Amazon account has your real name, your address. And so maybe Whole Foods now knows what supplements you take um, and various things like that. And so that's that's just a minor example. But mm -hmm. the first thing is simply to be aware of these things. Understand that if somebody is asking for something, it will get compromised um, and it can come to hurt you at some point. Um, and simply to start limiting these things. So I tell people just start rejecting by default, right? They want your email address, don't give it to them. They want your address at the mechanic, make up a fake one and just start being aware of this stuff, giving fake information when you can get away with it, rejecting by default and kind of approaching the world in, in that way. 
of just rejecting by default. So that's the first thing I would say. Um, and that's not a popular thing because when most people ask the question, they wanna know, well, what fancy software can I buy that's gonna keep me private? And that's the wrong way to think about it because privacy is similar to decentralization, right? In the sense that the more, if you rely on something, right? Something cannot give you privacy, right? The government cannot give you privacy because they have to know who you are and that you're a citizen and all these things about you before it grants you privacy, right? So having somebody give you privacy is a contradiction. It's a metaphysical contradiction. And so you have to be in charge of your information. You have to do more things for yourself. Really, the, the baseline state of, of humans is no privacy. Um, the only way that you can have privacy is if you are if you are you know putting up walls in certain areas to uh you know to to, to wall that out to to give yourself some uh, some sense of privacy. I mean, just just living in a house rather than living you know out in nature is a is you know a certain element of uh, of privacy. So that, I, I think that is an interesting way, and I think the, the correct way to uh, to look at it. It's not something that's that's given to us. It's something that we take. Yeah, I think that's a very important way to look at it. And, and the reason why it's important to understand that, John, is that, is that, therefore, when somebody comes to you and they say, well, we have a privacy law, it's going to protect you. No, that's impossible. Or we have this piece of software, it protects your privacy. Well, no, you have privacy when you don't use a piece of software, right? So now, of course, we have to interact with the world at some point. Um, and this is the point where I tend to just recommend a, a few simple online services uh, such as private messengers. It's very easy to download a private messenger, such as Signal, such as Wire, Session. These are end-to-end -end encrypted uh, messengers with zero knowledge, which means that the company itself cannot see um, the messages. And it's open source, which means that we can look at the code, verify the code, and make sure that nothing sneaky is happening uh, behind closed doors. So using a private messenger is a very simple thing for people to start doing. Get off of Facebook Messenger, stop using Apple messages and switch to one of these uh, private options. And that's a very simple thing to do. And you will uh, ensure that your communication is only between you and the person that you want. And so that's a one simple step. The other thing that I would tend to recommend is everybody should be using a VPN, a virtual private network. This is another piece of software that will uh, essentially give you a different IP address um, so that when, you when you're using a VPN on your computer, your internet service provider cannot see what you're doing. Um, they cannot see what you're downloading, uh, what you're visiting. They just see an encrypted blob of information. Mm. And that, of course, is protecting in, in all kinds of ways. And I tell people, get a paid VPN. Uh, don't be cheap about this. Get a paid VPN. Um, there are some ones I tend to recommend, like Proton VPN. Uh, Moldad, uh, ExpressVPN is, is pretty good. So those are just a, a, a few to give a try. But anytime you're using the internet, try to use a virtual private network, uh, and that will help you considerably, not entirely, but that's a that's a good first step. So these are these are kind of two initial steps um, that I that I recommend for everybody to use. I want to tell you guys about I Trust Capital. It's the number one crypto IRA platform in the United States. 
Um, you can self-trade cryptocurrency, physical gold and silver right in your retirement account. Now you get the, the tax advantages of a traditional IRA. You get them while trading crypto and physical gold and silver. Um, as an iTrust client, um, you're going to be able to log into your account and self-trade 24-7. Transactions are executed in real time and settle in seconds. They offer more than 25 crypto assets and they're growing. Um, they have transparent pricing. They have the lowest and most transparent costs in the industry by far. And they post the freeze right up front so you can see them. iTrust is secure. They use Coinbase custody and Curve to secure uh, your assets iTrust also has over 1,500 overwhelmingly positive reviews on Trustpilot. Now, here's the kicker, guys. Special offer here. All you got to do is visit itrust.capital slash lions and sign up today, open an account, move money from an existing 401k, whatever you got to do, and you're going to get $100 of Bitcoin when you fund your account. Go to itrust.capital slash lions to sign up today. And that would be, so I guess to take that one step farther, um, say, say you're out and about and you're you know at a co- local coffee shop. Would you ever use, or what would you do to, I guess, to protect yourself if you were at a coffee shop and using a, a public Wi-Fi? Or would you just never use public Wi-Fi? Yeah, I, I try to avoid public Wi-Fi as much as I can. That's not realistic for everybody. And, of course, the way to do that is just to have a uh, data on your phone with with a, with a lot of data, um, and you can kind of skirt around that. But if you are using a public network, this is another reason why you want to use a VPN, because this um, protects you from, from certain attacks that could happen through the wireless network. And so the VPN not only hides your IP address, it gives you a little bit of protection. And so definitely be using a VPN anytime you go to public Wi-Fi. Now, the downside with a VPN, John, is that websites are starting to, well, websites have been able to for a long time see what IP address you're using. And they can see that you're using a VPN. And some websites don't like that. Half of half of all my purchases online these days are rejected because they say, uh, we detected fraud. Hmm. Basically, they couldn't see exactly where I was and they didn't like that. And so they said, we're not going to sell to you. It's kind of like going to a shop and uh, the shop owner asking, where are you from? Who are you? And you refuse to answer. And so they refuse to sell to you. So I'm insulted by this. Um, I I understand that uh, if if it's fraud detected online and there's a credit card being used, then sometimes it's not worth their time. They can't devote the resources to accepting uh, the kind of fringe uh, fraud fraud, um, detections. I understand that. But what this shows is that websites are looking at you. They're making judgments about you. And your IP address tells where you are basically within uh, a few dozen meters, right? Essentially is what an IP address can do. Um, and so that's why you want to protect it. But just realize that you will experience the internet in a different way, which can be good, obviously. You won't be, um, well, for example, some online shops will charge you more if it detects that you are your IP address is in a wealthy neighborhood, for example. And so if you use a VPN in a different place, you might actually literally get a slightly different price. So when you use the internet with a VPN, you kind of just see all this surveillance that's that's going on. Yeah, you know, that's a, that's a, that's a very good point. Um, you know, it seems that a lot of, 
a lot of privacy advocates that I talk to, um, there is some overlap with um, a couple of different things. I think there's overlap with the you know a, no, a nomad lifestyle. Um, you know, people being able to pick up and, and live in different different parts of the world, be it for whatever reasons for for weather, for um, for income opportunities, um, taxes, whatever, whichever way you look at it. Um, but also, there's I think there's a and maybe go maybe it's the nomad aspect that drives it is this minimalism. You know, just you know not having a, a lot of stuff. So. Is there an overlap, and um, you know how does minimalism play into the privacy lifestyle? Yeah, uh, I think I think so. And the similarity is, is simply that people who um, people who are private they tend to see their life and the things in, in their life as as theirs. Right? This is this is theirs. This is not anybody else's. And they're going to um, keep all their information to themselves and. You'll tend to see, of course, nomads who are who think similarly, right? This is not whatever states. Uh, this is mine, mm-hmm. um, and so of course, privacy techniques can be essential uh, for even for tax reasons. Let's say that you are a resident of some country or some state, and the state is able to see that you've gone to the dentist in a different state, <clears throat> or you have. Um, uh, your phone history location is able to show you in X state. Well, if you're using privacy techniques, you don't leave any traces like that. Um, and you can avoid uh, a certain, uh, we're getting into a, a weird area here, but you can, you can, uh, you can sh- prove or show that you are part of, you are a resident of one particular area mm-hmm. as opposed to another, if that makes sense. Um, and so, yeah, I, I, I find that, um, Nomad techniques are very important for privacy. Of course, there are some jurisdictions that are more private than others. There are certain jurisdictions that are less uh, litigious, uh, so that you are less likely to be sued if you live in one place or another. Governments uh, vary in terms of how um, oppressive they are. Right? You go to Mexico. There's not going to be as much surveillance, um, banking, and otherwise as if you live in the U.S. So, of course, you can live that nomad lifestyle and go to a place um, that has more desirable characteristics. Well, isn't there surveillance with regards to living in Mexico if you're like trying to even, and maybe this is the problem, you know, trying to, you know, transfer funds using PayPal, I guess the answer would be don't use a service like PayPal. Um, yeah. Could you explain a little bit more what you mean by that? Um, no, I've, I've just, I mean, I've just heard from people that maybe Maybe it's that PayPal can't even. This is just something I heard secondhand. This was like a year ago. PayPal can't even be used to transfer funds into Mexico. Yeah, I've I've not heard of that. Okay. I was just kind of throwing Mexico out there as an example, but no, you're probably right because. And here's here's another point that we could discuss if you want, John. Is that uh, financial institutions like PayPal are starting to play politics and they are starting to reject people and. Mm-hmm. Um, allow people to use their service based on X, Y, and Z reason. Um, and so PayPal is not the necessarily the friend of of the uh, the freedom lover. And uh, I have no doubt that they kind of do that sort of thing and allow you to send to one place or another. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's I think that's important that you pointed out there is the, that trend of financial institutions using this data that they've collected on uh, on the masses. 
uh, as a means to either limit or restrict or influence uh, behaviors. And I mean, the, the, you know, a worse, maybe not a worst case, but a, a bad case scenario, and then which would lead to, you know, other bad scenarios would be, you know, if you look at, take example, something like the vaccine passports and, you know, I don't know if this is going to happen or not. It, maybe it has, it, it probably is happening in some parts of the world. Um, having, you know, your vaccine passport tied into, you know, what you're able to purchase. And if you look at potentially in the United States, if, uh, the Federal Reserve comes out with a digital currency, a CBDC, and that CBDC is tied in with those health passports or climate passports or whatever you know, whatever it is going to be. Um, they can use that, and paired with the data that they've collected on you, paired with you know your your cell phone tracking data, um, they can really control your behaviors. So. From a, I guess two questions would be: um, one, is this a concern of yours, and do you think this is something that that is, you know, is this something on your radar? And two, how can we use, uh, you know, privacy to protect ourselves? I know you've already given a lot of examples, but maybe there's there's something else that uh, that we should be uh, aware of. Yeah, well, financial privacy is an often overlooked privacy, and it certainly should not be. So the first thing I tell people, of course, is uh, use cash, get cash, love cash, store up cash. Uh, you can get cash privately. For example, uh, go to a store, get have a, a debit card purchase and write over. And um, let's say you get $100 back. Well, that $100 looks just like you bought something from the store. So that's actually private cash that you've accumulated, just a little trick. But yes, by all means, I, I tell any Liberty lover, Start using cash, first of all, for privacy reasons, but also to show stores and show governments that you're not going to stop using cash. Now, will that make a difference? I don't know. But I tell people, please put down the credit card and for the sake of everybody else, use cash as much as you can. Now, we are going in a direction where central bank digital currencies are a possibility, are a reality in in some places. And I mean, you don't need to read 1984 or any of these books to understand how uh, damaging that will be to uh, liberty and freedom. Any kind of surveillance is a way to control people. There's no way around it. That's that's what surveillance does through the chilling effect or otherwise. And so, of course, start to use cash. Learn to use cryptocurrencies. That's another avenue. I'm, I'm not saying invest in them. I'm saying learn to use them to purchase things. And I tell people to, of course, be aware of this stuff. When are central bank digital currencies coming? They will come to some countries quicker than others. I think in places like the U.S., there will be there will be serious pushback, and of course, you should push back as as much as you can and tell people that you do not want to use this, but learn to use the alternatives. There's nothing wrong with learning to barter and use Craigslist and all these things to trade items. Um, you can, with another person, make up your own currency. Right? You can determine what uh, what value is and, and what you want to get in exchange. And so these are just a, kind of a, a few examples, but I think you're right that these kind of things, whether that's central bank digital currencies, or there are other examples. We just talked about PayPal. Um, one of my favorite examples of cancel culture, PayPal told Alex Jones, this is great, when they kicked Alex Jones off of PayPal, who had, he had been a user for like 20 years or something. I mean, the guy sells a lot of, uh, uh, of uh, fish oil, right? <laughs> so a lot he, of was a good, he was a he was a 
a lot of supplements. He was a he was a, a good person to work with, I guess. But when they kicked him off, when there was a blitzkrieg to kick him off all the all the all the platforms, Facebook or PayPal's thing was they said we are uh, removing him because he does not meet our value of inclusion. In other words, we are excluding him uh, because he does not meet our values of inclusion. So the hypocrisy is disgusting and rank in all of these financial institutions. You have uh, companies like Visa who are talking about having limits on uh, put, putting a measurement of environmental uh, damage on purchases and potentially limiting people in that way. So there's all kinds of smaller examples, not just kind of central bank digital currencies, but a lot of the financial institutions are playing politics and they're kicking people off uh, based on what they say or don't say. And so your friend is cash, your friend are is cryptocurrencies, uh, your friend is bartering, and your friend is being in a, a, a country where this stuff is less likely to happen. So th those are just a, a few ways to get started. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. We're talking about cash and then also cryptocurrency and the importance of both because I just posted on Twitter a couple of days ago. I mean, I was just, I was just thinking, I, I obviously, you know, use cash and also have cryptocurrency. And yes, there are ways to, you know, just go directly to someone and do a transaction cash for crypto, but there's really, there's no scalable way to uh, trade cash for crypto or vice versa. There's a bunch of sites out there and whatnot that you can use, but who knows, you might get on a, you know, the, the Fed radar if you start using those too frequently, who knows who's behind them. Um, but it is, it's just, it's interesting because yes, it's so hard to avoid getting tied up in that, in that net. Um, if, you know, if, if you're using a, uh, a bank or something to make your crypto transactions, you know, that's, that's, that's going to be tied into it. So it's, it's, it's hard to, it's hard to avoid. So yeah, a simple thing is to do just yeah, keep some cash on hand and keep using cash. I know I'm going to, that's, that's one thing that I'm definitely going to start doing a lot more, um, right now and it's an easy thing for anyone to do you just you know set some cash aside every month and that's your your, your grocery money or your to go out to eat or or, or whatever whatever you do for fun um, yeah and i found uh i found using cash as i do that it's it's getting a little bit weird because everywhere i go or a lot of places i go people have machines and they're scanning they're scanning the cash i'll hand them hmm. if i'm in the u.s i'll hand them a, a ten dollar bill and they'll scan this thing uh, and you can kind of see, right? That's kind of the hint that okay, we're going to, we're going to at some point not accept this because it might be counterfeit. It might be X, Y, and Z. We just don't want to do it, so we're going to stop accepting it. So it, it's funny to see the warning signs when when you start using cash. Um, you'll see that people are not used to receiving it, um, but it's definitely important. And and I was going to say one more thing, John, um, about, uh, but it's. Uh, I forgot what I was going to say. Sorry. <laughs> no problem. Um, we can transition, you know, because we're talking about all of these, you know, really, when, when it gets down to it, evil things, you could call them evil, you could call them nefarious. Um, if the government's doing it, or financial institutions or uh, pharmaceutical companies, all, the, all these different players are involved. And you did a podcast, which which I just listened to. I guess it was maybe over a year ago. It was one of your, I think, one of your your first few podcasts you did, talking about psychopaths. And interestingly enough, um, I did a podcast. I think back in 2018 with a with a guy uh, named uh, his name's Doug Williams, and he passed away unfortunately um, uh, last year. 
but he was a polygraph expert. And he taught people how to beat polygraph tests. One And one of the things that he highlighted while teaching it is if, you know, these individuals that, you know, don't care about, you know, telling the truth, that don't feel that, that, that empathy, don't feel that connection, and don't feel guilty when they're lying, it's very easy for them to fool uh, and to beat a polygraph test. And, you know, that gets you thinking, well, wait a minute, what, what has the government used to qualify people for security clearances and, you know, military clearances and, you know, all of those things? The polygraph test, which is really an ancient, not ancient technology, but a very old technology that has changed very little um, since it was invented, I think, over 100 years ago. So when I think of psychopaths in government, I the first thing I think of is, is polygraph tests. Um, I'm, I'm curious um, your thoughts on that, for one, and also um, how did you become interested in looking at really the con- the control that, that psychopaths have uh, in our world? Yeah, that's an interesting topic. And let me just say real quick, because I remembered what I was going to say is that uh, pertaining to financial privacy, if there are things that you want that you don't want to be purchasing when there's a central bank digital currency, for example, your Glock 17, um, maybe maybe do that before these things come online. So just another just another tip. Now, as regards psychopaths, that's a really interesting observation. So um, definitions first, a psychopath is a uh, a human, or or they look like a, a human, but they are biologically incapable of um, certain things that would allow them to have empathy, and that's huge. Empathy is the only reason. Empathy is how we see somebody as another person, and not simply as a means to an end. Right. So the non-aggression principle: you have to see somebody as an end in themselves, and not simply as an end for you. Right. Uh, love your neighbor. Right. All of the any kind of ethical system you have, you have to be able to understand that there is another autonomous being that you're dealing with, and you're not going to coerce against them or whatever. For psychopaths, psychopaths, this is biologically impossible for them. So their interests are purely selfish, not in the Ayn Rand sense, but purely selfish in that they will go through anybody, they will harm anybody uh, in order to gratify their kind of reptilian brain, which is just, they're interested in desire, they're interested in power, they're interested in exploitation. And so I've frankly called these these things not human, because I think if you don't have empathy, you're not human, right? And so it's a it's an interesting episode. I, I hope people will We'll take some time and, and learn about psychopaths and, and even go back and watch that episode. It's called Privacy and Psychopaths. But when you start to understand this stuff and that maybe 2% of people are psychopaths, you start to, to realize that you encounter people, and I suspect there's a large percentage of them, as you said, in government who do not have empathy, who are not even interested in what they say they're interested in, right? which is the greatest good for the greatest number. They don't even believe in that, right? They are there to take advantage of people, to rule from on high, to enjoy their power, to bomb X country because it's entertaining. And these are the kind of minds that are making some of these decisions. So it's a real game changer when you understand psychopaths. That's interesting about the polygraph tests because yes, psychopaths have a different brain structure and they've done tests where they will one of the tests they've done is 
they will inform people that they're about to get a shock and they will slowly bring the shocking mechanism to the person. Now, regular people, they get anxious, right? They get anxious leading up to it, but psychopaths, they don't get anxious. And they've done other tests where they say emotional words to people, right? They have an assortment of emotional words and regular people, they associate the emotional word with X, Y, and Z. But for psychopaths, they have no reaction to them other than normal words. And so there's empirical evidence that these, um, these creatures have a different brain than us. They are predators and they see us as prey, right? In fact, you can't cure a psychopath. These are not people who can be cured. They are more sane or they believe they're more sane than us because they're not ruled by emotions. And so they see us as deserving of exploitation. Um, and so anyway, it's, it's a really interesting topic. I'd be happy to, to say more. Yeah, I think I think of that episode. You, you said something to the effect of, you know, they don't look at themselves as having a fault. They look at everyone else as having the fault. And like you said there, so when they're taking advantage of people, they're probably reversing it. That well, it's your fault. I'm taking advantage of you because you're not evolved enough to be on my level. Exactly right. You're you're a sucker, right? You shouldn't you shouldn't have been in my way. You should you should have been stronger. Um, nobody looks at a you know a wolf who's attacking a sheep and said well what's wrong with the wolf right for a psychopath to exploit people um it's 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 normal and here's a here's another good statistic psychopaths make up maybe two percent of people but they commit 50 percent of all violent crimes or or serious crimes and so i mean do the math that is uh that is a different uh worldview and a worldview incompatible with a regular people and if you go back in history and you start to look at history from this perspective, you can start to understand, right, how much psychopaths have shaped shaped the world. I mean, it, it, it's, it's really scary. So, so what can we do as individuals and also, you know, in communities and, you know, d- different sorts of groups we participate in to protect ourselves from psychopaths? Yeah, that's a good question. It, it's the same question of how do you reduce the coercive uh, institutions in your life? Of course, the government being the only monopolistic uh, coercive institution in your life, strive to uh, get yourself as independent from your government as you can. Go to a place that has a smaller government where psychopaths can do less damage. Um, in your personal life, right, just I would say, first of all, just start being Start understanding what psychopaths are. There's some good books out there. Um, there's one by Robert Hare, which is the one I tend to recommend first. I think it's called uh, Without Conscience. So just make yourself aware of this. And the things that these people tend to recommend is, look, start to ask people tough ethical questions. See if you can understand where they're coming from. Make sure that they're on the same moral plane as you. And if they're not, well, start to investigate. Is this is this a different kind of uh, entity than I am. And if that is the case, the only thing you can really do is to uh, maintain your distance. Um, and just kind of, once you're aware of this sort of thing, uh, you can start to try to spot people. Now, don't don't try to um, uh, be very careful, of course, about uh, being the armchair psychologist, but uh, you can make certain inferences and do your own research. And once you find these people, the only thing to do is to exclude them. Make, make sure that they have a uh, limited influence on your life. And that goes doubly for the psychopaths who are, you know, running giant corporations, uh, who are in bed 
with their fascist buddies in the government, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the ones that you especially want to be aware of, have more decentralized communities, uh, et cetera. Yeah, if you find out you're you're working for a psychopath or, or you know, one is having a major influence in your life, then I think that's great advice. You don't try to, uh, you know, stage an intervention and reform them. I agree with you. That's not possible. Uh, exclude them from your life as, as much as humanly possible and, and protect yourself. I think that's definitely the way to go. So I wanted to uh, re- really just ask you about, you know, in general – and this seems like this happened in the blink of an eye, but I'm, I'm 38 years old now. Uh, you know, I, I remember back to, you know, the, the beginning of the, the 2000s. It, it, it seemed like when I remember my childhood, I think back to a much different life where there was much more privacy. And I, you know, grew up in the, you know, as the internet was, you know, starting to to expand and, and grow and become more influential and, you know, and, and have more... Uh, more power in the world, but it, it seems like almost sort of the, the Edward Snowden, um, you know, the Edward Snowden um, moment where he exposed the NSA, it was like uh, that sort of ignited uh, for the world to see, or for those that wanted to see really that, that we didn't have privacy in a lot of ways that, that we thought we did. Um. And some people chose to say, oh, well, I guess we're not going to have privacy anymore and just ignore it. And then you'll ask them, um, so if you don't care about privacy, then just let me see all your browsing history. And they'll say, well, wait a minute. I'm not going to, I don't want you to see that. Then, well, I guess you do care about privacy. But so there's been sort of that reaction for people just to say, well, you know, nothing's private, whatever. And then there's been the reaction on your side, which is, I think, the correct reaction, which more of us should be going, where we're more concerned about this this flow of information. But my question to you is, how do you think we got here, you know, as, as humans to the point where, you know, really all information about an individual is fair game for a corporation or government to collect? Yeah, let me take you back a uh, hundred years ago to the early 20th century. This is when I think everything started to go wrong. We had just gotten through the 19th century, which was a fantastic century for decentralization, limited government, personal freedom. And you turn the corner into the 20th century. Um, Actually, let me read just a few lines from uh, a book called English History, 1914 to 1945. This is by a historian, A.J. Taylor. This is what he says, uh, leading up, okay, until August 1914, right, kind of the start of the First World War, until August 1914, a sensible law-abiding Englishman could pass through life and hardly notice the existence of the state beyond the post office and the policeman. He could live where he liked and as he liked. He had no official number or identity card. He could travel abroad or leave his country forever without a passport or any sort of official permission. He could exchange his money for any other currency without restriction or limit. So he goes on. But what happened? What happened in around 1914 where you have passports that start to be uh, to go in effect, and and places like Italy say that, um, or they 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 give out passports, and then they then they take them away from any young man who is eligible for military duty, effectively trapping them inside the country. Uh, you have around this time, of course, in the U.S., Woodrow Wilson, who gave us uh, the um, Federal Reserve, who gave us uh, the First World War, who gave us uh, the income tax, all these kinds of things. Now. 
what was happening around this time. This was what some people call the progressive era. Uh, Murray Rothbard has a book about the progressive era. And what started off as people who were really interested in the individual, right, the classical liberals, the individual, this is what I think, became so exposed, right, so famous, right, through realist, naturalist literature where, um, you know, they're, they're the, the person on the street, right, the beggar on the street is, is real literature, right, this is, this is what we're focused on, to it became about focusing on the individual so much that people started to say, well, we should change things, right? We should improve society so that we don't have beggars, so that society is more equitable. So there was a deal with the devil that happened around this time. Of course, you have collectivism brewing uh, in Hegel, right? The German philosopher who said that the state, right? The collective is the supreme thing. And as the 20th century kind of goes along, you have a real influx of collectivism. Socialism is running rampant at this time. The welfare state in Britain is born uh, around 1907. And what you have is people saying, look, we don't want justice. We want social justice, right? We want to guide society and, and reform it in a way that is better for everyone. And the state, as a consequence, gets bigger. And when the state gets bigger, of course, that power is never relinquished. And we go across the 20th century where we have this idea that the collective is superior to the individual. That necessarily leads to bigger organizations. Those organizations uh, inevitably involve spy organizations. And we get to this point where uh, you know, we are just little serfs for the government and they can collect things about us and people are okay um, giving up these, these rights and these liberties and they do so more and more every day. So anyway, that, that was kind of my, my big picture uh, take on that. I'm happy to follow up on specific things, though. Yeah, well, it, it seems like you know, as, as that as the state evolved, and you know, these spy agencies, you know, can, became a, uh, you know, I, I think I think there's a shift in the way people have looked at spy agencies. For a while, they were looked at almost as you know this this holy profession that you know when when somebody would say you know I, you know so and so works for the CIA but they can't tell you what they work on nudge nudge wink wink people would be like oh my gosh that's amazing that's amazing you work for the CIA i think there's been a sh- there's been a shift a lot of this has to do with trump you know love him or hate him he did a lot of bad stuff some decent things this being one of them that it's it's kind of pulled the mask back where you can see that uh, these organizations are not they're not out for you know the 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 best of the people they're out for their own self-interests and they're out to uh to uh to conserve power and to uh to grow more power um so so that that sort of shift any any comments on on what you think caused that yeah that's interesting uh I think you're right that there are more people who are aware of of these things these days. We can thank the internet for that as censored in, in, in many places as it's become. But I do think that the internet has been, it's been a tool for surveillance, but it has been a tool to help us get across the message that we're getting across right now. Uh, and it's really astonishing, to be honest, to hear so many people these days openly support uh, like anarchy. Um, and of course, uh, libertarians aplenty and, and people who have come up. I, I mean, I, if it was not for the podcast revolution, there are a lot of political things that I never would have come across. And so it's been, uh, democratizing in that way. Just, 
It's exposing people to all these ideas. Uh, it's more difficult for politicians to hide. We can see more of what's going on. And I think people are just getting skeptical of all the authority in their lives a little bit. It's not, it's not, I don't know that we have a revolution on hand, but people are waking up. And I think that's because of the internet and podcasting. And you can get your views on the quote unquote radio waves without getting permission from uh, the, uh, uh, the relevant authorities. So that's been great. I, th- I think that's a great point there with uh, podcasting in helping people to be exposed to different opinions, different political views, different ways of thinking. And that ties right into, you know, something that's happening right now with uh, cancel culture uh, going after Joe Rogan. Uh, you know, of course, anybody with a brain can see that it's a political attack, wholly political attack. Um, you know, they've used different different techniques to, to orchestrate this. And they've used some, some old clips from him where he said some things that, you know, he's even, he's, he's apologized about using the N word and, you know, different, different crude jokes as a comedian though. That's, that's what you do. You tell crude jokes. So they could have found this stuff anytime, but uh, they've chosen this point in time when he just really presented uh, some, some data on, on COVID and some, some thinking on COVID that did not go with the, the mainstream narrative. So there's been this orchestrated attack to either cancel or delegitimize or ruin him financially or all of the above to some capacity. So it, what's your advice as someone coming from the privacy world? And you know, I, I'm interested in hearing your advice as, as a podcaster on protecting, you know, can how, how can podcasters protect themselves from cancel culture? And also how can just regular people who maybe have Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts protect themselves, uh, you know, from posting something that gets them canceled? Yeah, that's a, that's a very practical question. And you know, uh, Joe Rogan made a deal with the devil when he decided to only allow himself to be part of one specific service, right? Before he was across all kinds of platforms. Now he is only on Spotify. And there's a, there's a great quotation by a, a man named Cardinal Richelieu. And he says, give me six lines from the hand of the most honest of men, and I will find something in them which will hang him, right? There's no... There's no justice being done these days. It's witch hunts, pure and simple. People want to shut people down. They get enjoyment from it, right? 60% of people are now buying uh, based on political motives. People like to shut people down and they know they have the power to. So that's what's happening. Make no mistake about that. It's not a matter of what you've done or did not do. We're all, we're all guilty of something somewhere down the line. So privacy techniques are really useful in combating cancel culture because privacy techniques, the the first technique which I mentioned in the beginning is simply to be more self-sufficient, to be more self-sufficient and to be diversified. So if you're, if you're running a podcast, I would say, uh, first of all, um, obviously protect your identity, protect your uh, home address. Uh, don't be too public out there about your personal life, of course, and have various avenues to reach your audience. So I tell people, first of all, who are getting canceled or they've been canceled, get a newsletter of all of your people. And you don't have to necessarily use it. Just have a list of people's email addresses. 
because if you get kicked off Facebook, you lose all that information. If you get kicked off of whatever service, you lose all of your people. But if you have their email address and it's sitting on your physical computer, well, you can reach these people uh, when you have things back up and running. So get a newsletter list running, be diversified across various platforms. Podcasting is excellent in that regard because there's just so many uh, podcast avenues. Now, if Apple shuts you down, which they don't, they haven't really done that. Apple Podcasts has not really shut anybody down. If Apple shuts you down, you might be hurting a little bit because a lot of these other podcasts, they pull from Apple. Mm-hmm. But you'd still be on, uh, you'd still be on um, some of the other big ones, Google Podcasts, um, et cetera. Um, but so get on various alternative video platforms, right? There's YouTube. I don't tend to advertise YouTube. Instead, I tell people, come see me on BitChute or on Odyssey or Rumble and simply get into the habit of, okay, I have the video up on YouTube. Now I put it on these six other websites and maybe I promote those more than YouTube. So just kind of start to diversify in that regard. Um, And that's certainly a a good start to being um, anti-fragile, shall we say. No, I think that's great advice. And and that's something we've, we've done here is obviously, obviously having the type of podcast we have talking about the things we talk about, uh, Google, YouTube, um, is not going to like that. So it seems like for the past two to three years, we've had constantly at least two strikes. And when you have two strikes on YouTube, they do expire, but, um, when you do have two strikes currently, you're not allowed to monetize anything. You can't have super chats. So we're not al- allowed to do a, a lot of stuff with YouTube. So so we do, uh, you mentioned Odyssey. Odyssey, that's that's my personal favorite. Um, but, but Rumble, we do need to get on Rumble as well. And I actually, I was on Rumble um, today checking it out because they sent out j- just a publicity stunt most likely. But offering Joe Rogan hundred million dollars to uh, to sign on with uh, with Rumble, and they would not censor <laughs> him at all. Um, which you know, it's good to put that out there. I, I don't know how how real it is, but uh, I would love to see it happen. I don't think it ever will. And, and it's, it's difficult. It's difficult for any company to say that they can promise true free speech, because you know what happens when the pedophiles get on there, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody at some point, uh, everybody has a breaking point. Um, everybody who starts off saying that they support free speech, they end up with a a list of, okay, but you can't do X, Y, and Z. And in some sense, that's understandable. Um, But the the best thing, in my opinion, is simply to bounce around on a number of these services, Uh, Rumble, BitChute, Odyssey, just just a few. There there are others out there and just add that to your your rhythm. Yeah, that's a good point with with free speech. It's funny when uh, what's the na- the name of the newest social media site Getter? I think it is. It's mostly just you know conservatives and Republicans. But when that first right. started, and I don't think I've checked my account. I started an account, but I don't think I've looked at it for a month. Um, when they first started that, there were a bunch of libertarians that went over there just trying to push the free speech line as far as they could to see what would get deleted. Um, and of course, you know things are getting deleted. They're saying you know really really abhorrent or really controversial things. And it's, I'm looking at it like, gosh, you don't even say this stuff on Twitter. Like, why, 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 why are you saying yeah. here? Just, just trying to prove the point. I, I do get that to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. At, at a certain point, the, the 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 true solution for free speech is for people to just go about things with a with a baseline uh, respectfulness. I, I don't really have a solution for the the free speech problem. But um, um, one other thing I was going to say: when you get on these other platforms, what you'll find sometimes is there are people who are politically aligned with you. 
right? So you go on BitChute, well, guess what? That's where all the people who are skeptical of the same stuff you're skeptical of, that's where they are. And so you can rack up a good audience count uh, and you can use that as your base of operations. It's And because there are fewer people on there, you can be you know featured and people will see you a lot more often. So there are benefits to going to these places. That's where everybody like you or a lot of people like you already is. Mm-hmm. That's, a, that's a very good point. You, you can buy up uh, prime real estate on those, uh, you know, because it's not as, as large an audience. And if you're producing a lot of content, yes, then it's it's easier for people to see your content. That's that's a great point. So I do want to ask you about cryptocurrencies in general. You know, there's, you know, certain ones that, you know, my friend Howie Snowden would say that Monero is, uh, you know, the, the best for, for privacy. And, you know, there's there's people who swear by Bitcoin, that that's the only cryptocurrency you know that should be used, the Bitcoin standard. So, what's your advice on cryptocurrency in general and how to use it as a uh, privacy strategy? Yeah. So, of course, the best cryptocurrency is the one that you can use to buy something you want, right? Which is, let's be honest, not very many of them. Um, and certainly you can buy a lot more things in, in Bitcoin than Monero, as much as I love the idea of Monero. So when you think about cryptocurrencies, of course, approach it from the top level, right? Are these things going to be successful? Which ones are most likely to be successful? Which ones can I actually use in my life? And so um, I don't talk about which to pick or investing or anything like that. But I, I do think people should be familiar with them. And what I talk about is, of course, how to use them. But before that, how to acquire them. Now, why should you be thoughtful about how you acquire and use cryptocurrencies? The blockchain, this buzzword all over the place, the idea is simply that instead of a central authority, you have a ledger, which is copied with every new transaction. And that ledger contains a copy of every transaction ever made. And so if I know what your Bitcoin wallet is, John, Mm -hmm. then I could go click on that and see every transaction you've ever made. I can see how rich you are. I can see a lot of stuff. And so that's uh, very exposing. Now, something like Monero does not have a visible blockchain. So that cuts that out from the start. With, uh, With Bitcoin, you have the IRS, you have all kinds of institutions that are creating algorithms and software to track all of these transactions. You use your Bitcoin in this place. Well, okay, this person is based in Miami, most likely. So there's all thing, all kinds of things that can be inferred. So first of all, I suggest anybody who's interested in cryptocurrencies learn how to acquire them privately. Now, that's a little bit more difficult. That means that you can't just go to Coinbase or Binance or Kraken and set up an account because now those coins are attached to your name. So what can you do? Well, first of all, you could try to get some Bitcoin with cash from an ATM or from a friend or from somebody at a conference or something like that. That's always a great way. Set up a wallet on your computer, right? Instead of an online wallet, one on your computer. I like Electrum. It's an open source wallet. It's a popular one. Transfer the uh, cryptocurrency into that wallet. Now you own this. Now you possess this without any connection to your identity, to your name. Now there's other ways of, of, of acquiring this stuff privately. Mostly it involves finding somebody who has something um, that they want or that finding somebody 
and getting the crypto from them and giving them something they want. You could just put your wallet uh, address online and have people tip you, this kind of thing, mm -hmm. right? Now, you can do certain things if you already have your cryptocurrency in Coinbase or what have you. You can do something like convert it to Monero and then convert it back from Monero uh, to Bitcoin. Um, and there's there's very various ways of, of going about this. Um, but those are just kind of some initial overview thoughts on uh, on privacy and cryptocurrency. Yeah, that's that's probably a whole a whole show in itself to uh, go down that rabbit hole. Um, I want to thank you first for being so generous with your time, and I also want to give you uh, an opportunity here to talk about your book. Um, you know, take as much time as you need and uh, let people know you know why they need to read it and you know, some, some important things that you, uh, that you talk about in it. Well, thanks, John. I'm glad to be here. I'll just, uh, be quick about this. Cause I don't like when people get too promoting. I have my book, the watchman guide to privacy. Uh, it's on Amazon. Uh, Amazon makes it easy to self publish. So that's a, that's a good option. It's only available on Amazon and it's basically a 240 page walkthrough of every aspect of privacy in your life. And so we talk about all the things that we talked about today uh, and more, and in some pretty good uh, depth. This is for beginners. This is for intermediate people, maybe some advanced people as well. It walks you through step-by-step. Step. Uh, it's the only guide that I'm aware of. It, this is the reason I wrote it is because nobody was talking about privacy in this kind of step-by-step -step way and also holistically uh, while assuming minimal prior, minimal prior knowledge. So uh, check out the book. Um, and I also have my podcast, The Watchman, uh, privacy podcast. We talk about some more radical things on there. Um, how to create uh, fake IDs, uh, how to create a um, self-sustainable uh, sovereign C pod um, and hope you don't get killed by the government uh, in the process. We talk about some, some pretty interesting stuff. So I, I would uh, send people to the Watchman privacy podcast. Awesome. Check it out. Check out the podcast by Gabriel's book. And uh, hope you all enjoyed this show. I, I mean, I, I learned a ton. I'm going to listen back to this again for sure. So thank you so much for uh, coming on the show. Thanks, John. And uh, maybe I'll see you again. Hey, I want to tell you about the Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy Podcast with Jacob Winograd. It's an ongoing evaluation on how a Christian should view the state and human authority, as well as diving into the principles of libertarianism. On the podcast, he explores the entanglements between the church and the state in order to bring Christians and the church back to practicing the mantra of no king but Christ. Episodes about philosophy, anarchism, politics, economics, and of course, very interesting guests. Please check it out, the Daniel 3 Biblical Anarchy Podcast with Jacob Winograd. Hope you guys enjoyed that interview with Gabriel Custodiate. I learned a ton from him, and I'm sure we would have talked a lot more about you know, the exposure to privacy and about CBDCs and about um, how in Canada, because we recorded this before uh, Justin Trudeau had become a little dictator and decided that he was going to use those powers just to freeze anybody who has assisted uh, the truckers uh, protesting in Canada to freeze their bank accounts, freeze their assets, and deperson them. So we, I'm sure we would have talked about that. And, and I mean, that's an interesting uh, path to go down because, you know, I think as a, as a case study, 
that is something, unfortunately, that I think will be used and implemented in many more parts of the world and will come to the United States in some form or fashion, um, probably in the not-too-distant future. So we talked about some ways to uh, to mitigate that. I'm going to incorporate some of those things in my life, and I hope you do the same as well. What else to talk about? Um, as you know, I have a another feed. There's two feeds where you can listen to Finding Freedom, of course, in the Lions of Liberty Network feed. Um, if you listen there, that's great. There's also the solo Finding Freedom feed. You can find it on any, any podcasting app by just searching Finding Freedom. And the bonus there is every Tuesday, uh, you get a show that it comes from my archives. Uh, one of the you know, most popular, most listened to shows. Uh, I bring it back to life. And this week, um, a more recent interview, an interview from about a year ago, I did uh, with Casa Marte. It was actually the second time I'd interviewed him. Just an incredible dude, an inspiring guy. Um, if you want to be motivated and you want to hear really a success story of someone who built uh, from nothing, from the ground up, um, after getting out of prison, um, he was able to build up a fitness empire, basically, uh, just, just by his bootstrap. So a, a great guy, great story. Check that out. Subscribe to Finding Freedom to get that. And also, if you love this show, please support us. Go to patreon.com slash lionsofliberty, or you can go to lionsofliberty.locals.com. And, uh, you know, for as little as $5, $10, $15 a month uh, or more, you can support us, and we appreciate it. You get our bonus content, our uh, bonus shows, Conspiracy Corner, Degenerate Gamblers. Um, you get access to most of our interviews that we do. Um, you can watch them live and, uh, and comment and, and do all that good stuff, either on a private or an unlisted YouTube link or in our, uh, in our Facebook group if you're still on Facebook. So please consider throwing some money our way. Um, we will put it to good use. We're planning to, uh, to travel around the U.S. this year, make it to some Liberty events. So looking forward to uh, getting to meet you all. That's really all I got for today. Thank you for listening. I hope everyone has a great weekend, and uh, we'll see you next week. Always remember to keep your head up, and the fire is liberty burning. Liberty burning.